Hi, I'm Tom Bright, and welcome to Outdoors in Mind. From being the first woman to ever solo kayak the Amazon to running a Namibian ultramarathon in 40-degree heat, Helen Skelton has never been one to shy away from adversity, or indeed any globe-trotting adventure. In fact, her mantra in life has always been, the harder the challenge, the better prepared you are for what life throws at you. And it's this combination of steely determination and personality that has seen her become one of Britain's most loved TV stars, presenting shows from Country File, On the Farm, to even the Olympics. And of course, we all fell in love with her on Strictly Come Dancing. I caught up with Helen for a walk around London's Regent's Park before settling inside for a chat, where she lifted the lid on just how tough those challenges were, but also life as a single mum, and how Strictly brought her back to life again after some challenges in her personal life. We've teamed up with Go Outdoors for this podcast, and you'll also hear more from me about the campaign Hats On For Mind later on. As always, if anyone is affected by anything in this podcast, for support, go to mind.org.uk. I hope you enjoy. Helen, welcome to Outdoors of Mind. How are you? I'm so sorry that I just bit my biscuit as you said that. <laughs> that was terrible. So yes, I'm very good because I've just bitten a bit of a crunchy biscuit. <laughs> excellent, excellent. We, we met each other earlier and we went we were in Regent's Park doing a lovely photo shoot with you. It was absolutely freezing, but you're quite used to the elements because you grew up on a, on a farm. This is nothing. This isn't even winter yet. I know you guys get to you all right walking in that muddy bit. And I was like, we're in Regent's Park. This is not a muddy area. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just what you're used to, isn't it? I had the kind of childhood where if you weren't muddy, my mum thought you hadn't had a good time. So the muddier we were, the better. And I don't know. I think that's something I've kind of carried into adult life. Yeah, absolutely. And your, your dad was a farmer and his dad before him was a was a farmer. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have any aspirations to move into the family business? Oh, my dad would have absolutely loved that. He spent so many years saying, you know, lots of daughters going to farming with their parents, lots of daughters. And it's something that I did entertain and I love the idea of it. But I think the reality is, and not to get too heavy, but away from the romance of that wonderful lifestyle, like working on the land. And like for me, my dad's office was our house and that's an amazing childhood to have. It's really hard to make money and make a living off farming. And I think for my dad, once he saw that me and my brother could earn our wages elsewhere, he was always like, oh, I wouldn't say put us off it, but he's just like, be realistic, be realistic. And that's why, I mean, the farming landscape in my lifetime has changed so much. But yeah, it's funny that now we're a lot further down the line and the older we get, me and my brother get closer and closer to farming. And he's always like, should we get a few of these? Should we get a few of those? And like a few of these and those is cattle and sheep and et cetera. It's quite funny though, isn't it? Because you've, you've led actually quite, in terms of your career, you've gone down quite an outdoorsy route anyway, with Country Farm and, you know, all these sorts of outdoorsy shows. It was funny. It was never something that I set out to do. I always liked stories and people and I wanted to be KAD and via various routes I ended up working at Blue Peter and it was cameramen on Blue Peter who said why aren't you doing country file and I was like what do you mean and they said well it's about farming and you know about farming and I didn't realize what I knew about if you know what I mean like my first country file shoots I remember referring to some sheep and one of the cameramen laughed and he was like you've just acknowledged something that people don't know and and I don't know a lot like I don't genuinely I don't know a lot about sheep but I know the difference between certain sheep and I think that in some fields made it I'm trying to be humble without sounding like I pretend I know what I'm on about but I think that made me have a little bit of an expertise slash experience which is why I ended up doing that. 
You mentioned, you mentioned um, Blue Peter, and uh, that was very much your sort of your your big break, as it were, into sort of the public arena. Um, and I think there's lots of sort of misconceptions about children's TV presenters, but it was a really sort of relentless, um, really hard job in many respects. As soon as you started, mm-hmm. you were packed off to Alaska for six weeks. Oh, 100%. I mean, I started at Newsround Children's TV before I moved into Blue Peter, and I think you're right. There is an assumption made about children's TV presenters To me, I will always stand by, it is the hardest job in terms of broadcasting because it carries such a weight of responsibility. And I remember doing news round and I used to go to the same things as the six o'clock news were going to, floods and situations. And we had to tell the same story. Like we had to say what was happening in Afghanistan, but for six-year-olds and for seven-year-olds and put it into a language that people understood. I remember watching... Um, my colleague called Adam, who does newscast now, do a piece about Barack Obama when he became the president of America. And he did it in like a pop video music way to make it interesting for kids. And I thought, that's genius because you've done what all the grown-up telejournalists are doing for kids. You've said the same things in an interesting, different, creative way. And I think that to me is why I would never underestimate a kids' TV presenter, especially now that I've got kids because... The responsibility and legacy that they have is massive. Mm. It's really interesting, actually. You mentioned about your, your colleagues in BBC News, because obviously you did loads of really, as you say, really important dispatches, and you went to some really challenging places. I mean, one of the places was you went to you went to Chernobyl in, in Ukraine. Mm. What was that like? Oh, it's funny because I think people do remember, yeah, the big headline things, and they got dropped out of a helicopter and you walked on a high wire. But the things that, for me, I look back on Blue Peter as the proudest things and the things that I'll talk about till the, the day that I pass are those moments, the Chernobyls and the appeals, the, you know, Sierra Leone's and Uganda's and all the comic relief appeals and children in need. But you mentioned Chernobyl and we went there because it was the European Championships. And so we went to that neck of the woods to tell kids about that part of the world. And it was inevitable we spoke about Chernobyl Without doubt, one of the eeriest places I've ever been. We went as close to the site as we could. And, you know, that was before I went there, before I had children, before I got married. So you have a, I don't know, is it a wonderful sort of selfishness then, don't you? Because you don't appreciate your relationship with your parents because you haven't got kids in the same way that you do. And I, you know, I was desperate to get as close to that site as possible and, and you know, feel like I was being a proper journalist and all of that sort of stuff and it was the closest thing I was ever going to get to a war zone so professionally it really lit me up but personally it was the most uncomfortable environment ever you know there was a woman wandering around who had been displaced obviously very different time there wasn't the aid charities that there are now so there was a woman who had been told to leave her apartment yet had gone back because she had nowhere else to go but living in a place that's been deserted for a few decades would inevitably do things to your mental health um so yeah it was definitely an uncomfortable place to be you hear about sort of war reporters and stuff having ptsd and things like that and obviously you're out on the ground finding all these stories and and in terms of your own mental health you must have found some really sort of tricky stories and difficult stories, heart-wrenching stories? Oh, without shadow of a doubt. I think the appeal films were... The tricky things with making those television appeal films is you have to tell the story that is going to make people pick up the phone and donate and support those charities because that's what it's about. You've got to be respectful to the people in front of you and, you know, help them maintain a level of, you know, dignity yet you're there to do a job as well. And I think the wonderfully liberating thing about children's TV is 
you're not a hard and fast news reporter and you have the ability to speak down a lens and talk. So I actually think that almost makes it easier because you don't have to limit it to a certain number of words. And Blue Peter, we were a rolling commission. We were kind of in control of what we wanted to do. You know, we weren't under the cosh of a news editor saying, you've got 30 seconds to say this and all the rest of it. And But on a personal level, we were such a tight team. You know, the cameramen and soundmen and directors are still some of my closest friends now. And I don't think that anybody struggled in that sense because we had our team and we had phenomenal support from the office. I'm still in touch with the editor now and I say with no hesitation that we were able to address, go in and out of those situations, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching situations, okay, because we had such a good support team. You know, you come back and you have time to reflect but we had that with each other. And the great thing about children's TV is you have so much perspective. You know, you're very quickly into a new environment, doing something different, and whether it's the right way to approach it or not, but you never had, you know, there was always something next to think about and and then there was always something next to focus on. So, no, I guess the long-winded answer is we were very lucky in terms of the support we had and the environment in which we worked. That's brilliant, because in many respects you were so young as well, having to deal with these huge, huge stories. Yeah. I wonder if there's an element of ignorance is bliss. Mm. I'm not entirely sure I would find it as easy now that I have my own children to be in a room. You know, I did stories for Comet Relief in Sierra Leone where children were dying because of diarrhoea. And now that I have my own children, I'm not sure that I would find it as, I would be as able to say the things that needed to be said in the moment. You know, I mean, you, do, you inevitably get swept up in it because it's who you are and that's why we do the job that we do. Yeah. I'll never forget, a, I was in Sierra Leone helping a little boy carry water and we were filming it and he fell and cut his foot and ended up carrying him back to his house on my back and the cameraman was laughing. So he was like, that is you, Helen, that is classic you. But the great thing was because it was kids TV and we had the environment we had, it didn't matter that we mucked up the film because I carried him back. Yeah. What needed to be done was that kid needed to get back to his house. And we had the liberty to do that, which was a privilege. I wanted to ask you, Helen, about um, your ultramarathon in Namibia. I mean, it sounds absolutely um, astonishing, the, the, feat of, the feat that you undertook. It's three marathons, let me get this right, three marathons in the desert in 24 hours. Again. I mean, looking back on that, what on earth were you thinking? Ignorance was bliss, like the other <laughs> things. Um, I think there's a fine line between stupid and brave, and I'd never run one marathon. So when the idea came up to run three marathons, I thought, what, what can be so bad? I didn't have a reference point. So I was like, fine, this will be fine. Um, and yeah, I ran 10 minutes and my lungs nearly fell out of my body. And my parents said, this is a terrible idea. And I thought, well, I'm in it now. Like, I've committed to doing it. So I did it and I did 10 minutes at a time, then a mile, then five miles. And I'll never forget the first time I ran for an hour. And I phoned my brother absolutely elated. And I was like, oh, if I can... A few weeks ago, I didn't think I could run more than 10 minutes. Yet here I am running for an hour. And I thought, at that point, it's fine, I can do it. And I just think, I've always thought since then, don't overthink it. You just do it bit by bit, one chunk at a time. And to me, I never ran three marathons. I ran five miles lots of times. Right, I see what you mean. Well, tell me about the heat. Was it just, was it just really opp- oppressive? The Irish guy who'd won it the year before said to me at the start line, it's like running into a wall of fire. Oh, my word. (laughs) And he was right. I mean, that kind of, in the middle of the desert, there's no 
shelter. There's no shade. The terrain was unforgiving. There was snakes. There was, you know, nothing. There was no let up apart from health. Um, you got your weight checked and things to make sure that it was safe every so often, every half marathon. And other than once every 30 miles, there wasn't anything other than desert and crater and rock. Um, so, yeah, the heat, was it just swallowed you up. Like, it, you know, when you're really uncomfortably hot, there was no escaping from it. There was one little cactus that I tried to crouch behind at one point when I was hallucinating and seeing seals that weren't there. And um, at that point, I very, very nearly broke. And ironically, why I didn't break was because the cameraman looked at me and was like, shh, shh, don't talk to her, she's going to break, like she's going to have a moment. And uh, I was like, you guys, and I just lost it because I was like, I need you to look me in the eye and tell me I can do it. And so I think it was the rage that got me up from behind the cactus and got me on a few more miles. <laughs> was, that, was that your lowest moment behind that cactus? 100%. I think it was, I thought, it was the only time in that race when I thought I was going to have to pull out. And the... Um, oh God, it sounds cliche to say it, but when you do that job, kids get in touch with the show all the time and you feel that weight of responsibility. It's not like doing adult TV, where if people don't like you, they go on Twitter. If kids don't like you, they turn, turn over and watch something else. If they do like you, they write to you and they tell you what they want you to do. And they'd written to me lots and said they thought I was going to win it and they thought I was going to do all of this. And I'll never forget a kid wrote, <laughs> I wake up every morning and I think, where is she? Uh, you know, like, how was I in the race and all of this? And you don't want to be the person to let them down. And that's why I finished it, because I just thought I couldn't face going back to the studio and saying I didn't do it. <laughs> what was it like having the crew there as well? They would have driven me mad. Um, it, do you know, it's a double-edged sword, because some people say, oh, you had the support of television, which is true. You have the support, so you have those friends there in that moment that know you better than anything. But the flip side of that is, in order for it to make good TV, you've got to explore your demons. Like, tell us how bad you feel. Tell us why you're struggling. And you go down a little rabbit warren, if you will, in that moment. And I think that's what can be your undoing. Mm -hmm. But for me, I've always kind of got a lot of strength and solidarity out of the crew. And it's a team effort and you don't want to let them down. So I, I think for me... It worked doing it for telly and having a crew. I mean, don't get me wrong, there were moments when I was like, can you like, just shut up? Like, stop asking me how I feel every five miles. I feel awful. I've got blisters the size of 50 pence pieces. I'm bleeding, I'm sweating, I'm hallucinating. I don't want to talk about it. Um, but without them filming it, I wouldn't get the chance to do it. So it's a double-edged sword. I said to you before before we um, started filming how I read your book, and I couldn't believe how much you how many how much you crammed into your short life already. Because <laughs> we're going we're going from we're going from the ultramarathon, we're going to, to the next feat, which is you were the first woman to solo kayak the length of the Amazon. I mean, when you're having this when, when you're having those initial meetings with the BBC, and this was announced as some sort of, as your next venture. I mean, they must have thought, what? No, we can't do that. It's impossible. A lot. They thought that a lot. And um, I think that was the joy and the wonder of it. Like, it was such a moment. I joined Blue Peter after its 50th, and it was at a time when, you know, social media was sort of just becoming a thing and Facebook had just been created. So people were looking elsewhere for their content. Like, they weren't necessarily looking to children's TV. So we had to really fight 
for our relevance. And it seems mad to say it, but it was before YouTube was a thing. So we had to really kind of do stuff that made a noise to say, we deserve to be on television. We deserve your kids' eyes on our what we're doing. So I, we knew that there was a responsibility to do stuff that mattered. And, you know, I've always really felt, it sounds geeky to say it, but I've always really felt like Blue Peter has such an important place. Like it's a show that was telling kids to be whoever they want to be, boy, girl, everything in between, since before that was a thing. It was telling people to recycle since before that was a thing. It was telling people to reach for the stars and own your emotions since... I just think Blue Peter has a really important place and I joined it at a time when people needed to be reminded of its place. So I think the mad, big, wild adventures, it felt like that was my job, that was what I was there to do. And when we talked about the ideas, somebody would say something, oh, how about this? And I go, like the Amazon came about because someone said, why doesn't she pedalo a bit, a section of the Amazon? And I naively said, why do a bit of it? Why wouldn't we do it all? And admittedly, I didn't fully appreciate how big it was at that time. So three countries. <laughs> the whole continent. The whole continent, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so, and I think the more people said, that's a mad idea, the more people in the office, and I can't stress it enough, it was a family, you know, it was that whole, the more everyone in the office is like, well, you know, if she can pull this off, it'll be, it'll be brilliant, it'll be mad. They said it can't be done, it shouldn't be done, that's why we should do it. And that's what Blue Peter is to me. It's people saying to kids, no, 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 don't do that. Okay, you get your head down and do it anyway. But it's all very well in that planning stage, then you need to execute it. So what was it like sitting in that kayak for the first time? You had a, you had a support crew with you, didn't yeah. you? But sitting in that kayak, starting off on your on your expedition, how are the nerves? I thought, what the hell have we done? Like, we had to... So there was a, a crew with me that lived on the boat, and we they'd been... You can imagine it, all those things, the mountain of red tape and health and safety and training and hoops to get through. That's before you even, you know, get to South America and get a kayak shipped to South America and find the point in the map from which to set off. And so, to be honest, I can remember the moment that I set off, I just squealed with joy because there'd been so much planning and so much effort and so much energy. The moment of setting off, that was when I got to do my bit. And all I had to do was paddle, just to keep going. Just And again, I never thought, oh, I've got to kayak the whole Amazon. I thought, I know I can do 16 miles, so I'll do 16, and then I'll do 16 more. And then I'll do 16 more, and then I'll do 16 more. And that's what I did. And every day for 46 days, I just uncurled the next bit of the map, coloured in the bit we'd done, and uncurled the next bit and coloured in the bit we'd done. And then bit by bit by bit, you've done a whole massive adventure. And Eric, who led that trip and made the film, um, and Gav used to say to me almost every day, um, don't wish it away, don't look at it like it's forever. And they were right, because it was... It was god-awful, you know. What were the hardest moments? Um, blisters all over my hips and backside, you know, like sitting in a little kayak all day, every day. Blisters all over my hands because you're in there for, you know, upwards of 12 hours every day, every single day. Uh, nowhere to go to the bathroom, nothing to eat other than what you can find in front of you. So fish that jumped in or, or rice or bananas. Um, not really knowing where you were because there's no proper maps. So have you just spent 16 hours going in the wrong direction? Don't know. Um, well, can you imagine? Oh, yeah, and it probably happened. Storms, oh, my word, the Amazon-sized storms that would thunder up. I can picture it to this day. That You'd be sitting in the kayak and you'd just see the thunderclouds coming up the 
river and the raindrops would be like, you know, as big as pebbles. And in that moment, there was no paddling forward. It would just send you back up the river, the, the strength of the wind and the rain. And so those were the days when you cry because you think, I'm a tiny little woman in a massive river. I mean, there'd be Arctic lorries coming. There'd be ships with 15 Arctic lorries coming up the river at me. And Eric used to go on the little walkie-talkie and go, just so you know, history's been made. There's a girl in a kayak coming towards you. Funny enough, Peruvian ship drivers didn't care. They'd be like, okay, we don't care, you know. And because I was a fly on a, you know, rhino's backside to them. So it was... Yeah, I mean, it was just mad to think about it. And that's why I did the book, because I wanted to kind of get them down in black and white without being that annoying old woman to my kids saying, there was this one time I was really interesting, there was this one time I went on an adventure. What was it like sometimes being in that kayak and looking up at the vast sort of expanse of sky above your head? What was it like mentally? It was never lost on me that some people could spend their whole life trying to get a taste of that adventure that I was doing for work. You know, it was, yeah, it was hard. You know, I was sick on myself. I had blisters everywhere. I hadn't seen my family. I was in that kayak for, as I say, sometimes 14, 15, 16 hours a day. Um, Everything hurt. You know, I didn't know if I was doing something that people were going to get excited about or I was making a massive fool of myself. Everything was a challenge. But I was, like, face-to-face with sloths and parrots and pink river dolphin and you know it was every bit of the Instagram quotes that people share around like you just look up and look at what's in front of you and there were so many things to just acknowledge there was one day it was Valentine's Day there was all these pink river dolphins swimming around the boat and I thought people spend their whole lives we as we got further down the river and closer to Brazil there was a cruise ship of British or European tourists coming back up the river and they're all hanging over the side of the boat and waving at me because they'd seen me on the TV and they, they knew what we were doing and I thought they're people of a certain stage of life who've saved for this to come here and I'm here right now doing this and they're all giving me praise for it you know I should be the one going well done you made it you retired and you saved up for this and I'm like so it was never lost on me what we were getting the chance to do was it quite hard re-entering oh, real life after all of that? 100%. It wasn't even like we were away for months and months and months, but, you know, we were away for weeks and weeks and weeks. And and I remember, uh, you know, we lived on a boat. We showered in rain. We didn't um, go to shops or anything like that. So it was just wonderful. As a kid, if you're the kind of kid that I was, this is the kind of adventure you dream about. You don't know where you're going to sleep. You don't know where you're going to eat. But to come back... So I remember wearing shoes and walking down Oxford Street <laughs> and thinking, oh, I felt like I wanted to say to everyone, I wore shoes in weeks. <laughs> I wore shoes in weeks. But obviously I didn't. Um, but yeah, it was, it was weird. And I think when I finished, it was weird. In any of these challenges, I've found the end the hardest. Because it's not, you know, you do, you take on, people always say, oh, you're a kayaker or you're an adventurer. I'm, no, I'm not any of those things. I try those things and I make tell you about them, you know, boxing, highway walking, whatever. And I throw myself into it as much as I can. And I always find the end the hardest because when you come out the other side, like people go, oh, do you still highway walk? No. Do you still box? No. Do you still dance? You know, you don't, 
it is hard to incorporate a lot of those things into everyday life. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. I, I don't want to turn into, into sort of a Helen Skelton greatest hits, but I mean, the, the other uh-huh. big adventures that you did, I mean, was astonishing. The, the 500 mile cycling and kite skiing to the South Pole, for instance. I mean, that was astonishing in its sort of in its scope and its ambition. But I think you found that one of the hardest ones because there wasn't necessarily that that crew with you to support you. 100%. It was, um, yeah, I have always found that any of these things are a team effort. And, you know, the high wire is a perfect example because I get a lot of plaudits for, oh my gosh, you walked on that wire. And it- so this is you walking on the highway across Battersea Power Station. Yeah. <laughs> and people, like, I think that's because it was a moment, like quite a visual thing. That's probably the one that people ask me about the most. But actually the team behind the scenes were the ones that made that happen. All I had to do was do walk on a straight line. I think the team that convinced Battersea Power Station to, to let me do that were the ones that put all the hard work in in the late nights. And so for me, it's always been a team effort. And I found that easier because I'll, when you know everyone else is putting in 100%, you put in 100% because you raise your game, don't you, to everyone around you. And so I found Antarctica particularly difficult because... The, my telly bosses very much wanted me to have a crew that I couldn't speak to and rely on as much. So they had a separate camp to me, like they would have a stand-up tent and a stove and they could cook bacon. And I was, they did speak to me, but they weren't meant to really interact with me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think everybody in Telleyland knew that I bounce off people and I that keeps me going. I lift them up, they lift me up. Um, and I think they wanted me to have as much of an authentic experience and be a real Arctic explorer as possible. And not many Arctic explorers have a little team crew, sort of hype crew, do they? So, yeah, I definitely found that the most difficult. And there was no, obviously no sunrise, no sunset. So it was a brutal landscape. Oh, it's wall-to-wall white. Like, the, it's sensational. And, you know, breathtaking is one of those things that didn't really fully understand what breathtaking meant until I went to Antarctica because it is otherworldly. But it's there's no beginning and end to the day, really, because there's no sunset and, and um, sunrise. So you don't have that kind of momentum and that rhythm and the kind of ebbs and flows of your day. You just have to keep going. And It's quite interesting because the way you've sort of compartmentalised your previous adventures you've done you know 15 minutes 15 minutes but you couldn't really do that this time around could you I did it in hours so walking in hours and walking in hours but yeah I didn't have the the landscape or the and I don't mean that disrespectful you know I was with a guy Nicholas um, Norman who was just so buoyed by the environment and now I look back on it and I think I wish I'd been more like him you know he was just thriving on the fact that he was in Antarctica whereas I found it quite it was quite a challenge you know I was very conscious of what we had to do. Like we had to get to the South Pole and we had to, the responsibility of making the telly. And it was, a, there was a lot of things that played you conscious that you've got to, my job there was to make telly about exploring rather than to be on holiday in a wonderful white wonderland. So I sort of was conscious of that. Whereas he was able to sort of, I don't know, I should have been more like him and got more excited by what was there because that was once in a lifetime. Did you have to dig much deeper mentally into your reserves to get through that? Yeah, I think you just have to find the positives of each of each sort of section of that. And for me, it was the hours, five hours, five hours, five hours. Um, but I think it's good to test yourself. And that was why, although 
it was the most difficult. It was probably one of the ones that I learned the most from because it isn't always sloths and parakeets and pink river dolphins. Sometimes it's just white. This podcast is brought to you as part of the Hats On For Mind campaign, which Helen is an ambassador. She's designed her own hat and flask and they're available to purchase online and in-store at Go Outdoors, Blacks, Blitz, Nailers and Fishing Republic. 100% of profits from the campaign will go to mind. On Strictly Come Dancing, you, people loved you on that show. Thank you. And you got, you got to the final and it really resonated with so many people. But it came at a time in your life where, if we're being honest, it was a, it was a tough time for you. Um, you. You'd broken up with your husband and... You know, you had your three children. Your youngest is only six months old. Elsa. Yeah, yeah. And and you you're in this place in your life, and you suddenly decide, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to go on the biggest show on television. <laughs> tell, tell me about your tell me about your thought process there. Well, I didn't really think about it, and I think a lot of the best decisions in my life, I haven't had that much thought. Like I've never been a big planner. My world is a big world of chaos a lot of the time which stresses out a lot of my family and friends and I think Strictly came along at a time when there was so much noise and so much going on and so many movable parts of my life that I kind of almost thought well like you know people Strictly is really terrifying and wonderful in equal measure but it sort of came along at a time when I thought well it can't be any more terrifying than anything else I'm facing at the minute it can't be any more noisy than anything else that I'm having to drown out at the minute. So let's just go for it. And also sometimes I think it's, you know, you you can spend your whole life writing pros and con lists and sometimes you've just got to lean into it, otherwise you miss the moment. And when it came along, it was funny because some of my best friends were like, you 100% need to do Strictly now. Like, go and do Strictly now or go on a juice retreat to Ibiza. And obviously I did Strictly and obviously... It came along at a time when my youngest was tiny, but anyone with kids, and I think I only knew this because it was my third, would possibly agree. It's almost easier when they're little mm. because she was still doing big three-hour naps in the day. She could still come to nurse. She could come uh, from nursery to training or, you know, my mum would bring her along at lunchtime. A lot more difficult to do that when you've got older kids who've got their own social lives and are embarrassed by you being on TV and all of that sort of stuff. So I think the younger they were, it was actually better. Yeah, I would say definitely. And also, I think there was a quite interesting quote in your book where you talk about, you know, when the cards of life deal you something that hurts, your reaction is always to take on something more difficult. Just good training for life. Like... I think that's kind of why I did things like the running. You know, when you, the older you get, the more you realise life churns up things that you don't pick, that you wouldn't want to have to deal with, and things that aren't in your control. And that's why I've always enjoyed doing those challenges, because it gives you good reference points. You know, there's been times when I've had no toenails, 50 pence piece size blisters, hallucinating, crouching behind a cactus in the desert and I'm thinking there's no way anything life throws at me is ever going to hurt more than this yet I'm going to still keep going so what was it like though before the first dance most weird feeling ever because I've spent a life I've done all my growing up on telly Blue Peter gives you a set of experiences that you think I've experienced everything on telly this has been my job is to try challenges and take people on that journey with you and get through it so I was really surprised at how difficult I found it, just in 
like, being in close proximity to another man that's not your husband, that's uncomfortable and something that takes time to get used to. Thankfully, Gorka totally got that. You know, like he's a dad, he's got a partner, he got it. That, you know, he used to, he used to laugh because he'd be like, at first, if I, in the dance, touched your face, you'd always be like, whoa, what are you doing? That's, a, that's an unusual thing for people to have to get used to. So that was weird. And then the hair, the costumes and the makeup are the best in the business. They are so good at hair, makeup and costumes. That ho- There's a whole team of people, like phenomenally talented, wonderful people, Lisa, Lisa and Vicky, whose job is to make you look and feel good. But if it's not your stuff, you can still feel like a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember standing in, this, in the salsa outfit and it was amazing. I had this huge wig on and this sexy makeup and this like glittery bustier dress and someone was like, you look amazing. And I was like, do I? Because I've got to do school run in about 48 hours. Do I look amazing or do I look like a tit? What was it like juggling the, 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 the home life and the, and the school life with Strictly? And obviously you had your, your Five Live job as well on yeah, the Sunday. Yeah. Five Live was great because I think it gave me that almost reset button. Like I could go on the air and talk about all the things that were sort of normal in my life. Like I could talk about the football, I could talk about the news, I could, you know, sort of have like a couple of hours... It was a wonderful privilege to do live network radio, especially Five Live, because you get to just talk like an adult to people. And when you've got small jobs and you do our job, you don't often get the chance to do that. <laughs> it was like the equivalent of going for a coffee with your mates, only on the radio with the nation. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Uh, so the Five Live bit was actually all right. Um, I just obviously went there without a lot of sleep. And then the juggle, I mean, my life was just two mad extremes. You know, one minute you're in a corset crawling around on the floor and the next minute you are at swimming and doing school run. And I came, um, I was very lucky though because Gork has got a child, so he got it. You know, he'd be like, right, we'd get in, we'd be super efficient. Then be like, okay, you've got football at this time, you need to go at this time. And my parents were amazing. So they did all the not fun bits of parenting and I did all the fun stuff. So I still got to take the kids to all their things. So they didn't realise I wasn't as present. Do you know what I mean? Like my mum did the supermarket shop so I could do the fun things. You know, the things that the kids don't appreciate but need. Now it was just a really good time. I mean, God, I'd go back in a second. It was just so, just wonderful. Like what anybody at some stage of their life needs you know, the country's best makeup designer, hair designer, wardrobe designer to make you look good. You know, phenomenal camera people to make you look good on the telly. And a phenomenal dancer who makes you feel amazing. And what's great about dan- the dancers, I found, you know, I was like, okay, I'm hurtling towards 40. I've just had another child. I'm on my own. I've got, I've moved my life. I've moved my house. There's a lot of things that you could go. <laughs> That's a bit of a sticky wicket. But the dancers are all like, oh, my God, you've, you've, you've had three children. That's incredible. Oh, my God, you bought a house. That's incredible. Oh, my God, you know. I think they're just a good breed of people. Like, they're hype people. Do you think it changed you as a person, Strictly? And do you, do you think you needed the Strictly experience to get through what was going on in your, sort of, in your private life and, the, the, as you said, the noise all around that? I think everybody needs... Everybody, every now and again needs people to go, do you know what? You're really good at that. Like, as you become an adult, you know, if at work, the longer you're there, with your kids, the longer you're a parent, 
You spend your time propping everyone else up because that's what you do. You know, you become the more senior person at work. So you've got the experience. So you prop everyone up. You become the matriarch of the house. So you prop everything up. And I think everybody at some point needs a little reminder of, actually, you're really good at that. You're really good at this. You're really good at that. Here's your invisible crown. Pop it on. And I think, I don't think that's exclusive to, you know, having a challenge or a tough time or something going on personally. I just think with our kids, we tell them when they do a good drawing, yet we never really tell our colleagues when they've done a good email, do we? <laughs> you said you said your book how strictly brought you back to life. Yeah, of course. I mean, and I, I see it when I watch it now. Like you can see the people who on the first few weeks shuffled down the stairs and now stride down the stairs and I was that person and there was loads loads of those people in the year that I did it you know like Ellie Simmons Ellie Taylor we all said it you know that you go in there and you're like oh what they can't all like each other as much as they think they do and it isn't just dancing you know it's about I think anybody will get a massive confidence boost if you take on something you don't think you can do and then you do it and the challenge is all relative isn't it mm. you know I'm not I'm not for one second suggesting everyone can do Strictly, but I think Jade Adams said to me in the really early weeks, she said lots of things that resonated with me, Jade Adams, the comedian who was with Karen. But one of the things was she said, oh, do you think I'm comfortable dancing around in that flash dance costume? No, I'm not, Helen. But if I can show other people that I'm a big girl and I'm all right with it, maybe another big girl is going to wear something and get herself out and have a good time. And I thought, really valid. She sees that's her legacy and I thought fair play like that's really impressive that stuck with me and also she was like oh you, do you feel uncomfortable about this that and the other I said yeah and she's like well that's where the magic happens isn't it and she's right you know there's a reason all those cliche statements exist did you get lots of messages from people oh overwhelming number of messages I think because I think you're very relatable to lots of people you know just going through these similar scenarios and I imagine people reached out to you to sort of I've always found people are very honest, which is both good and bad. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, you know, one of the things, after I did the Amazon, I'll never forget, I came back from having done the Amazon and I was walking down the pier in Southwold and a gentleman came up to me and he linked my arm and he was, no disrespect, but he was clearly in his 60s. He wasn't your standard Blue Peter viewer and he linked my arm and he said, we did good, didn't we? And I was like, mm, thinking, do I know you? And he said, oh, um, I was going through chemo when you were go going down the Amazon. And every Saturday when he came on the news and gave an update, I could see in your eyes how tough of a time you're having. But I was having a tough time too. And I used to think, I'm with you, Helen, we can get through this. Yeah. And I think for me, that's something that has always stayed with me because I thought, oh, this isn't just a job. Like, what a what a privilege. So... I think it's totally normal for everybody to have chapters of life that you think, oh, I wouldn't choose to do that bit again. But actually, it's normal. And maybe my job is just to remind people, that's all right, keep turning the pages. It's like, it's a frivolous comparison, but like the week of the samba towards the end of the competition, worst dance. By that point, I was really enjoying it and I'd thrown myself into it and I was, I got it. I'd gone from thinking, get me off this dance floor to, oh, okay. Yeah, we'll give it a crack. And and I remember they said, oh, you know, maybe... They asked me what I thought about the dance, and I was like, I don't think I'm here to be the best samba dancer. I think I'm here to remind people that 
it's all right to not be the best at something. It's all right to find something terrifying, but just have a crack and put a smile on your face and see where you get, give it a whirl. And I think that maybe landed with quite a lot of people. And that's what I got messages about. I mean, people would share stuff about their life that was just... There's one lady who messaged Gawker and I a lot. Mm. Um, and I won't obviously give too many details away, but she was going through, to me, what I would imagine, the worst thing someone could go through, that her child was terminally ill. And she said to me, she used to message us most weeks, on social media, don't know her, and she used to message most weeks and she'd say, and this wasn't just about me, this was about everyone on Strictly, Strictly brings a bit of joy and colour to my living room every week in an otherwise very dark time. And I think when you get messages like that, you don't really have any capacity to whinge about anything. You just put the glittery frock on, pin the wig back in, and cha-cha-cha or samba or whatever it is they're asking you to do. It's incredibly humbling, isn't it, when oh. you hear things like that? Perspective in this job, and I think that's why I love this job. You get so much perspective in every single, you know, every, every half hour of my television life, you get reminded about somebody, the way someone else does something. And it's, um, yeah, it's a privilege for sure. Talking of your television life, another decision which you, you took was to take part in Celebrity SAS. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is up there with Strictly in terms of, you know, out there ideas and things to do. Did you, did you enjoy that? Is, do you know what I love? Did you enjoy it. the right word? It's a, it's a bit like, I don't know. I don't know what the comparison is. It's awful. It's like tattoos, right? Tattoos hurt a lot, but people get addicted to them. And that's a bit like SAS. You, it's not fun, but it's so addictive. And like, as soon as you come out of it, you want to go back in. And I was... And no, I, is that really? Oh, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. You, it's not... There wasn't any moment of that that I wanted to leave. Oh, no, maybe there was one moment where I said to Tony Bellew, I think I'm done. And he just looked at me and went, no, you're not. And I was like, all right, you don't argue with Tony Bellew, do you? No, you're right, I'm not done. Where, yeah. does, where does this mental resolve come from? Does it come from all those treks and the, and the expeditions you've done previously? I don't know. Are you much stronger as a person now to be able to sort of contend with all of that? Throwing at you. I think maybe, and I'm only, maybe I'm only saying this and it's romantic and naive, but I think it's maybe a Cumbrian thing. Like most people I know just get on. Like I wouldn't say, it's funny, like none of my friends from home ever say, oh, aren't you resilient? Oh, aren't you tough? They're just like, oh, you're doing that now. Or like, oh, we're talking about that again. Like my brother will literally say to me, are you still going on about the Amazon? You did that years ago. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's like a, Farm background, I don't know. You just, you get on with what's put in front of you. And that's the way I've always been. I mean, it's, it's horrific though. I mean, it's horrific. I, I can't believe you enjoyed it because obviously the, the interrogation scenes on that show are notorious. Mm. You know, the mental pressure that you're put under. Um, but you, you, you took it all in your stride. Yeah, and I, the, the physical things are what makes it look scary, but it's the interrogations and the anxiety that they put on you that makes it tough. You never know if they are going to jump in and make you go out on the parade square. You never know if they're going to, you know, they'd come and get you out of the bunks, put a cloth over your head, drive you around, take you to the edge of a jetty or a pier. And, you know, it's the highlands in winter, so it's cold. And they'd be, like, pushing you back. So you're thinking, oh, I'm going in. I mean, your hands and feet will be tired. So your hands and feet are tired, cloth over your head. You're standing on a pier. You know you're over water. 
an aunt or Billy or someone would be like pushing you in the back and you're thinking, I'm going in the water. I'm not going in the water. I'm going in the water. I'm not. And then they'd put you back in the car and drive you back. And you'd have two hours sleep each night. So you're constantly on edge. We were so on edge. People kept using the bucket in the corner of the room rather than go to the portal who's on the other side of the square because they were too nervous that if they went to the toilet, that's when they oh would... Oh, my word. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You can't unsee that. <laughs> so, yeah. I, but I don't know. I just... I enjoyed... It's like people who run a marathon. People run a marathon and they get to the end and they say, I can't wait to do another one or I'm never doing one again. And I've always been the kind of person that says, oh, I can't wait to do another one. I just quite enjoy that literal, tangible reminder that, oh, I've got this. Have you got anything else lined up? Um, nothing in the immediate future, but then never say never. These things just pop up, you know. I always go, oh, I'd like to do that again. I'd like to do that again, but nothing, nothing immediately. Obviously, this podcast is about um, mental health, in particular of an outdoors um, theme to it. Um, and you love being outdoors. I mean, you love going to the lakes. You've been going there since you were young. You like paddleboarding, I, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Well, I swim. I it's so funny. I was talking to someone the other day from the same neck of the woods as me. And she said, why does everybody call it wild swimming? It's just swimming, darling. And I was like, yeah, I guess it is. When you, you know, lucky I was brought up with a river, two fields, outside two fields and a river outside my front door so that was swimming to us you know we did that's what we did as kids and I love now that there's so much scientific evidence about you should be among greenery and you should go to fells and you should be outside and you should be in nature I love all of that because it justifies why people should do it for me I've just always been the kind of person that I need to be outside because it just sets me right like, you know, when I lived in central London, I couldn't handle it. Lasted a few weeks. I moved to Chiswick and lived right by the river. And all my friends in Shoreditch were like, oh, my God, she's moved to suburbia. But for me, I could jump off the wall and the river was right there. So I bought a boat and I started to paddle. And I think it's really good if you can find something that makes you feel good. And I don't think we should get lost in. It's good for you because... It does this and it does that and serotonin and all that. If that's the kind of, if you need to justify what makes you feel good, great. For me, I've always known that green spaces, being outside and being around water make me feel good. So I just make a conscious effort to make sure that I do that. And I think since I've moved back to the lakes, I make a conscious effort to be in the water at least once a week because it just grounds me to there. And tell, tell me a bit about the, the campaign which you've done that you're currently doing with Mind. This is a campaign that we, Julia, Sean, David, Gethy and myself, are very genuinely proud of in that I think it's wonderful to be asked to support things, but if it's something that you do inherently and believe in and is part of you, it's a, it's a no-brainer and it's a joy. And Mind is a charity that supports so many people in so many different ways. And for us, having the opportunity to raise money that provides counsellors tangible things is something that we were really keen to be behind. The double the double win on this is you buy a hat, the money goes to mind, pays for counsellors. That's brilliant. But actually, you buy a woolly hat, you're more likely to go outside for a walk, even if it is cold and raining. Win-win. 
You know, it's a win for you physically, it's a win for you mentally, and it's a win for the charity and people who might need that support. Um, so it's something that we're really proud of. I think we're excited slash nervous because it did well last year and we want to build on that because we want to deliver that same check to the charity at the end of the year. And anecdotally, you get all these messages from people who, there are so many people who have said walking, nature, hiking, being outside has helped with anxiety, mental health, depression, anecdotally people say that again and again and again and they're saying that because it's real and it's a thing and I'm a big believer in do more of anything that makes you feel better on that note Helen it's been a pleasure thank you so much thank you thank you